Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Education Channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. Today, we're going to discuss the book, The Teacher Insurgency, A Strategic and Organizing Perspective by Leo Casey. The Teacher Insurgency addresses how the unexpected wave of recent teacher strikes has had a dramatic impact on American public education, teacher unions, and the larger labor movement. Casey explains how this uprising was not only born out of opposition to government policies that underfunded public schools and deprofessionalized teaching, but was also rooted in deep-seated changes in the economic climate, social movements, and, most importantly, educational politics. My guest today is Leo Casey. Leo Casey is the executive director of the Albert Shanker Institute, a strategic think tank affiliated with the American Federations of American Federation of Teachers. He taught and worked in New York City public high schools for 28 years. During this time, he was a union activist and leader, serving for six years as a vice president of New York City's United Federation of Teachers. In that role, he led the unions organizing in charter schools. Casey has won a number of awards for his teaching and was named the 1992 Social Studies Teacher of the Year for the American for the American Teacher Awards. For 10 years, his students, all of color and predominantly immigrants and girls, won city and state championships in the We the People Civics Competition, twice placing fourth in the nation. Casey has worked with teachers in Tanzania and Russia on the development of civics education and with teachers in China on promoting critical pedagogical methods. He has written extensively on civics, education, unionism, and politics in both print and online publication. Casey holds a PhD in political science from the University of Toronto. Leo Casey, welcome to the New Books Network. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I think we should start today by reminding our listeners um, of what the teacher insurgency was. So there is. Or is. Um, There was a series of unexpected strikes um, that developed in 2018, beginning uh, with a strike in West Virginia. And in 2018, those strikes then proceeded to hit a number of what we think of as red states, that is, states that had uh, Republican, quite conservative state governments places like Arizona, Oklahoma, um, at that point, Kentucky, North Carolina. Um, And uh, then in 2019, there were another series of strikes. um, But in this, at this point, uh, the teacher uh, insurgency had spread to blue states. So you saw very important strikes in uh, Chicago, in Los Angeles, um, not quite as important, but also in Oakland, uh, in Colorado, Denver, Colorado. So you have a series of strikes, um, all of which are significant because for a long period of time, 
there had been very few strikes um, more generally in the United States. Strikes had dwindled to a handful um, by the beginning of the 21st century, and also particularly in the education sector. Um, so this uh, represented a significant change. And these strikes uh, uh, focused on two sets of issues. The first set of issues was around uh, austerity policies that had led to a rather significant underfunding of public education and of public schools. This resulted in poor um, teaching and learning conditions for children in schools, uh, inadequate textbooks, out-of-date materials, um, school buildings in poor repair, uh, a whole series of uh, large class sizes, a whole series of um, teaching and learning conditions which um, were poor and um, had an effect on the compensation package for teachers. So teachers were significantly underpaid in these states. Um, they were paid significantly less than uh, other professionals with a similar level of education. Um, there were even uh, stories of, of teachers having to take two and three jobs to make ends meet. Um, their health insurance and their uh, retirement pensions uh, were also under attack. So there was one whole set of issues that came from the underfunding of education. And then a second set of issues that came around the professional status of teaching and the professional authority of teachers, um, in part because of No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top, there had been the development of a rather extensive regimen of standardized tests, which students were um, um, compelled to take um, K through 12. And these tests became the basis, the results of these tests became the basis for making decisions about student promotion and graduation, about uh, teachers' evaluation and um, their, their professional status, and about even um, the closure of schools. And um, combined, um, these conditions um, led schools uh, to focus more and more narrowly their curriculum um, in order to produce um, high levels on the state exams and to undermine the professional authority of teachers in the classroom to provide the sort of instruction that they knew was in the best interest of their students. And so this combination of issues um, produced uh, these strikes, which were really unexpected. No one in the realm of education expected them to happen um, and were really unprecedented. Many of them, particularly in 2018, um, were statewide sure, sure. strikes. Yeah, especially yeah. In, in, as you said, places in West Virginia that um, we don't, we don't typically think of as being hotbeds for uh, teachers unions anyway. Although you go on to explain um, in, in, in the second section of the, of the book, how these strikes are related to 
a number of um, in in the section on strategic challenges, uh, how the strikes themselves are related to the civil rights movement, to labor history more broadly. Um, and you think through what the strike means as a mechanism for winning power on, on behalf of teachers and, and laborers and, and also about community organizing. Um, so I wonder if you could speak a little to um, some of those issues that you take up in, in that second section of the book. Yes. Um, part of the reason why I wrote the book was to have a much broader uh, and much more democratic discussion um, within teacher unions, within the labor movement generally, of questions of strategy and questions of organizing. Too often, those questions are put off as something that the leaders of teacher unions should somehow decide and not uh, fully involve the membership in them. And I think that's um, an unfortunate sort of approach. And so I wanted to actually pose those questions in a way that uh, ordinary teacher unionists and other unionists for that matter could examine them and draw their own um, conclusions from them. And so in the second section, I looked at um, four what I call key strategic challenges. Um, the first involved the relationship between mobilization and organization. And here is where I think um, it is particularly instructive to look at uh, teacher unions, not just in the context of the labor movement, but also as a protest movement, um, that, that they share some very important similarities, for example, with the civil rights movement. Um, and there was a lot of discussion um, about the teacher strikes of 2018, which suggested that they didn't really need the traditional forms of organization that had been the basis of strikes and had been so important um, in the civil rights movement, um, that it was possible somehow to mobilize these actions purely through social media, um, things like Facebook and Twitter. And the point that I made um, was that in fact, organization, ongoing sustained organization um, has always been key to movements for social change in the United States. Um, and while certainly social media provide new tools that we should learn from and, and involve ourselves in, uh, make sure that we include them in our organizing work, organizing itself um, building organization is absolutely key uh, to the success of the movement. And it, indeed, it was in West Virginia, which had the strongest uh, teacher union organization of the 2018 states, uh, that they were most successful. In West Virginia, teacher union density um, borders on 75%, and they were able to use that organization enabled to use their political influence um, to more significantly uh, achieve their goals than in other states where the union density was less. The second strategic... Yeah, I think that's an... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I think that's an important point to make because so often, especially in this contemporary 
contemporary uh, age, we get sort of distracted by sort of the, the shiny new thing of social media. Um, I've heard the same point made about the Arab Spring and the protest in Tahrir Square that uh, a lot of people point to Twitter as, as an organizing principle, but that it was really labor unions that motivated their memberships to, you know, kind of at some point you got to be able to put your body on the line for one another and that the, the sort of face-to-face work of organizing is really the key to getting that done more than um, simply liking something on Facebook. Yes, I, the, there's a very excellent um, book on social media and protest, um, and it talks about the power and fragility of network uh, yes. protest. And I think that's true. I mean, the power is important. Yes, it gives you a reach behind beyond traditional forms of, of organizing. You're able to, to make contacts with people that... Um, in, in a short period of time that you wouldn't be able to do. But precisely because of that, the the quality of those relationships doesn't have the strength that you have right. in face-to-face organizing. And when I think you, you described it as thickness, I think, in, yes. in your book. Um, the, those, are, those are thick relationships. The relationships teachers have with each other in schools are thick relationships. And when you're tested in a strike or, or in a protest movement, it's the quality of that relationship and the emotional ties that teachers have yeah. made with each other um, that allow them uh, to remain strong and in solidarity and win. And so yeah, I, I, go ahead. I will always remember the, the first strike that I participated in as a member of the faculty here at Oakland. And I was an adjunct lecturer um, scared out of my wits because I had no experience with this kind of thing at all. But a, a senior colleague just sort of gave me this reassuring nod that everything was going to be okay. Um, and, and because I trusted her, um, I was able to, to do something that I didn't imagine myself doing before that. Yep. And, and when, you know, when, when you're fighting for each other and not just for a sort of set of yeah. principles, that's very important because um, it it may be possible to sort of swallow your pride and and um, you know go off of an unsuccessful strike um, around principle, but mm-hmm. if you feel that you're betraying these people that you're close to, um, that's an entirely different matter. And so the strength of those relationships and the sense that you're in it together is is key um and um that's that the power of those relationships are built in a school because teachers rely upon each other in a school um you're not just in your own classroom if some teacher in a school is not functioning is not able to pull his or her own weight um that has a negative effect on everyone else so so there is it's important to understand the the resiliency of solidarity requires those face-to-face relationships. Yeah, and and that I think takes us to um, the the sort of context of labor history more generally. So, do you want to talk a little bit about that? So, the the second strategic issue um, is around um, this relationship between direct action on the one hand, so protests 
strikes, civil disobedience, and political action, on the other hand, um, involving oneself in electoral politics, um, lobbying and petitioning government. And there is a history in the labor movement, um, an unfortunate history, of not understanding what is the dynamic relationship between these two, of seeing protest and strike um, in particular as the means for advancing a, an agenda on behalf of working people, members of the union. Um, and seeing electoral activity and political action um, as a diversion. And the argument that I make in this chapter, um, and it's one that is, I think, well-grounded, particularly in the history of the civil rights movement, um, is that, in fact, there's a synergy between the two. And that if you rely upon one only, um, if you rely either only upon direct action or only upon political action, you find yourself in a situation where you're unable to really move significant change. If all you're doing is electoral work, you're, you're, you're captured on, on the terrain of the existing power relationships. You don't have any means to transform them. On the other hand, if all you're doing is direct action and strikes, um, you're not able to consolidate um, whatever momentum and energy you get out of that direct action. You're not able to actually institutionalize it. If you look at the teacher insurgency strikes, for example, there's a whole set of issues they raise, such as um, the role of charter schools, which can't be settled just in a strike that require legislation. Um, there are a whole set of community demands around questions um, such as, um, you know, how immigrant students are treated in schools and whether or not the school districts allow ICE into schools, um, which are clearly beyond the strike itself. Um, and, and the whole issue of austerity policies, the whole set sure. of questions around teacher professionalism and the inordinate importance given to test, all of these are questions which ultimately um, require some political action. And so the argument I make there is, is the importance of combining um, direct action and the strike with uh, political action. And the history that you, that you sketch out here uh, identifies that there really is within the labor movement sort of a split between those, seeing those two things as interrelated. Um, and and you, you label the idea that the only path to power is through direct action or through strikes as syndicalism. Yes, um, th that's the, the term that it's used in the labor movement. Um, but you know, it, it's broader than the labor movement. If you think about community sure. organizing, for example, and um, Alinsky or Alinskyite sort of community organizing, it is in its own way syndicalist. It's a sort of community syndicalism um, uh, where, you know, all you do is um, organize in the community around some particular issue. You never actually 
attempt to address the question of who holds political power and who's in the government and how to change that. But in the labor movement, it's interesting because it has it takes two form. And so people generally think of syndicalism as something that in the American context um, would be um, connected to the IWW, um, mm-hmm. known as the Wobblies, um, which um, was a radical form of syndicalism. It sort of verged on, on anarchism. Um, sure. But at the same time, the AFL, which um, was the more certainly conservative and much larger wing of the labor movement, also had a position of not involving itself in electoral work and of just relying upon strikes and collective bargaining to advance um, to advance the cause of, of working people. And so it, it's not um, necessarily a position which is you know, a more radical position. It's, it, it takes many different forms. And in each case, um, the, what becomes problematic is the inability to, to, to deal um, with what is the most important kind of center of power in the society, which is government. And when you look at the history of important strikes in the United States, it becomes clear that what government does is very important in how those strikes turn out. And so um, the strikes, for example, um, that the United Auto Workers organized um, in General Motors in Detroit in the 1930s that was absolutely pivotal for organizing industrial unionism, um, they were successful in, in significant measure because um, Governor Murphy, who was a the Democratic governor of Michigan and President Roosevelt, refused to intervene to break the strikes on the part of the employer. Um, and on the other hand, you look at um, the strike by the by the professional air traffic controllers, PATCO, um, in the yeah. 1980s, um, the fact that um, pres- then President Ronald Reagan um, intervened in a significant way to break the strike. Um, was after having been endorsed yeah, by the same union. After the union had supported him, that was very significant, um, and it it led to a period where you know strikes were were far less um, used, and they became you know a much less effective. Uh, means of of action on the part of unions, and so it becomes really important um, to to f- understand that dynamic relationship between the two uh, if you're going to be able to move an agenda in a significant way. Well, this is this that provides a really good um, place to to go off to the the next chapter of the book, which talks about strikes. And as you as you point out, we've we've gone through a period now of gosh, probably what, 40 years where strikes have become less and less common in across the culture. And then in 2018, um, we see them break out in some of the most unlikely places by what we think of as maybe some of the least likely people to engage in them. So you talk a little here about the relationship between teachers and striking. Yes. Um, it's very important, I think, to 
uh, have a, a clear-eyed view of strikes. Um, for, for various reasons, there is a sort of romantic tradition of looking at strikes. Um, I think it has something to do with the fact that strikes are a very powerful weapon and that when they're successful, they can you know, bring you changes that you would not have otherwise been able to achieve. Um, they are a, a graphic uh, expression of solidarity among working people. And so there is a tendency to romanticize them and um, in the history of the labor movement to um, say as the West Coast Longshore leader, Harry Bridgers said that strikes are the only weapon uh, mm. that, that labor has. And part of the problem here then is the, the failure to understand the conditions under which strikes are successful and the conditions in which they fail. Because as powerful as strikes are um, when you're victorious, they can be equally disastrous when you fail. And the Patco strike is an excellent example there. And so what I sure. tried to do in this chapter was uh, look at the history of strikes uh, by teachers um, in the early 1960s um, into the early 1970s, teacher unions were basically established in the United States with strikes playing a very significant role. Um, those strikes were successful. They went from the first strike in New York City um, in 1960 when there was no collective bargaining uh, for teachers in the United States to by the mid-1970s, uh, where teachers um, were had collective bargaining in many, many states and were um, in some ways the most dense of major occupations in terms of union presence in the United States. But what then began to happen um, in the 1970s, and again, there's a strike in 1975 in New York City over um, the fiscal crisis of the city, mm -hmm. was that those strikes became less and less successful. And um, there was a lot of public opposition to them. And it became, um, it, it became the case that strikes began to dwindle in significant measure because unions were finding that they were counterproductive to achieving their ends. And so one has to go and, and look at what was actually happening um, in those two periods of time uh, and to try to understand uh, exactly what the conditions are for strikes to be successful. And there's a number of different um, parts of that that I look at. I, uh, I, I would focus on here on, on a couple. One is that if strikes become the only um, direct action tool that you're using, um, they become less and less effective. One of the lessons from the civil rights movement um, and why um, it was able to really bring down the Jim Crow regime in the Southern United States was their ability to be tactically innovative. And so every time one particular uh, tactic 
was countered um, by one of the segregationist states, they would move on to a different tactic. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a similar sort of lesson in recent labor history, United Farm Workers in California, where they not only would they have strikes um, in the fields in California, um, but they would be um, organizing a boycott across the United States um, in support of those strikes. They would be engaged in various forms of civil disobedience. So my argument is that um, the irony here is that if you rely singularly on strikes, you make strikes less effective. They're more effective um, in the context of a number of different forms of direct action. And uh, the the other issue, which I think is worth highlighting here, is the relationship between the union and the community. And so and this makes up the, the theme of the next chapter of the book. It's the theme of the next chapter. It's it's the end of of a, the the chapter sort of um, one segues into the next because it's also yeah. the end of this chapter, which is that in nine, perhaps most famously in New York in 1968, um, you in the Ocean Hill Brownsville strikes, um, but there were other strikes that were very similar to it, like the Newark strike um, in the early 1970s. Um, you see a, a real division between um, the union and the community. And how that happens is complicated. It's not a simple, you know, one side um, is in the wrong, one side is in the right story. But the effect of it is such that in 1975, um, when there's a strike to try to prevent these, these sort of, of, devastating cuts to New York City schools, laying off tens of thousands of educators, um, denying schools all sorts of of important um, learning resources that they need. Uh, the, The union and the community are in a relationship of significant distrust to each other. And the only way to have successfully fought back the move from the financial elite in 1975 would have been um, with a, a common front between the union and the community. And so um, that becomes a very key piece. And, and then the question is, um, how do you build that sort of unity? And that's the fourth strategic challenge that I address. And one of the things that's very interesting about the teacher insurgency strikes is the extraordinary support that they had um, from the community. Uh, it's unprecedented in the history of teacher strikes. And it's particularly interesting because teacher strikes obviously cause some real disruptions for, for parents of children. Um, sure. For whom, you know, schools are are, among other things, schools are the place that they leave their children when they go to work and that they know their children will be cared for. And um, if, if schools are shut down because teachers are on strike, then, then they have to try to struggle to figure out what else to do with their children, whether they can actually go to work, 
Um, are there relatives or friends who can look after their children? It's, it's a very serious inconvenience. But what happened in the teacher insurgency strikes was that the unions were so clear about the fact that what they were fighting for was not just the status of teachers, um, but sure. the teaching and learning conditions in the schools that parents and community people felt a real investment in the strikes. And they felt that the success of the strikes would play a very important role in improving the education of young people. And how this was developed was around something that unions called bargaining for the common good. Uh, and what that meant was that the union did not simply take up the question of teacher pay and teacher health insurance and teacher pensions. Um, but it took up a whole series of questions around what was happening educationally in the schools. What were, um, because the teaching conditions were the learning conditions of children. Um, yes. And so um, when it did that, uh, it um, was able to significantly um, significantly convince families and communities that they had a stake in the success of the strikes and um, and change um, you know what had been to that point um, a history where even when strikes were successful um, they were successful dis despite the fact that right. there was opposition from the community rather than because there was support from the community yeah, and that that is such a, a key point that you raise that um, the idea that uh, faculty or teacher working conditions are student learning conditions, and, and I think um, the fact that these folks were able to make that point clear, uh, engage the community, um, really in, in dramatic fashion, which I think leads us to the the final set of themes that you develop in your book about the. Um, in some ways competing, in some ways overlapping discourses that shape how teachers organize themselves or are organized by unions. Um, can we go through these discourses and, and tell us how they um, serve to facilitate the, the goal of um, teacher organization? So um, I start um, with this sort of discussion of the literature on organizing and um, what I say about the literature on organizing is that it tends to miss a very important dimension. It talks about the issues around which organizing is done. And it talks about the techniques that one uses to organize, both of which are important. Mm -hmm. um, but what it really doesn't discuss is what I call um, the creation of a we, that is a collective identity. Um, among those who are um, organizing. And um, I think that that collective identity is a very key piece. And for teachers, obviously, the collective identity is that of being a teacher. And to understand um, how to organize teachers, you really have to sort of plumb the depths of what teacher identity is what is important to teachers, what they really care about. Um, those discourses which make up teacher identity 
uh, are the ways in, in which teachers talk about who they believe they are and what they want to accomplish in their life as teachers. And if you're going to organize teachers, you need to be able to understand those things and you need to be able to speak to them. And so I talk about discourses um, that are central to the teacher identity in the United States and other parts of the world as well. But um, my focus is on the United States. And because I use the word discourse, um, people might think that this is just a way in which teachers talk about something. Um, But my view is that a discourse um, is actually much deeper than that. And so when a teacher, to, to use one example, when a teacher talks, for example, about the discourse of nurturance, um, in its most simple form, when a teacher talks about his or her students as my kids, um, yeah. sort of invoking a relationship of a parent to his or her children, um, they're not just using a language. They're actually... Um, speaking a language which is embedded in the relationship that a teacher actually has to his or her students. This is that there's a set of feelings um, and there's a set of activities and practices um, that a teacher engages in uh, around this discourse of nurturance. And this is true of each of these discourses. So there, it, it's not just um, a, a set of thoughts. Um, abstract thoughts that a teacher has, um, but the very power of them is from the fact that they are embedded in these actual relationships that teachers have. Yeah, they're really how we how the how the teachers see themselves as teachers. Yes, um, and and how they live it. Yes, how they live being a teacher, and so there are four discourses that that I identify. Um, The first is the discourse of nurturance, which is obviously um, invokes sort of the the, uh, an ethic of care, if you wish, about Mm -hmm. children. That um, there's something about the work of teaching which is different um, from the work of um, producing an automobile, or different even from the work of 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 picking up garbage um, or or running a subway train or the work of being a reporter in a newspaper. It is work which involves other human beings, um, younger human beings who rely upon you. And that uh, the power of the care that you have for that, those children is very important. And, um, and it, the emotions that are built around that are very powerful organizing emotions for teachers. Um, Teachers care about their students and they're willing to make sacrifices for their students in a a way that they wouldn't abstractly do um, for other sorts of enterprises. And there's also, because this involves relationships, um, it goes to how schools are organized And there is, if you want, a sort of imminent or internal critique of how schools are organized 
that comes out of this discourse. So for example, if you are a middle school or a high school teacher um, that has a program of teaching five classes a day with 30 or more students in it, um, seeing 150 different students every day places a real limit on what sort of relationship you can have with each of those students. Absolutely. So the whole idea of the importance of small class sizes and the importance of small schools where um, the adults in the schools get to know all of the students well and care about them, that is very much embedded um, in the idea of teaching as a discourse of nurturance. And um, that is why teachers um, are, are, are very willing to be organized around those questions because they affect the quality of the relationships they have with their students. Although, yeah, although at the same time, it's also kind of a double-edged sword often for teachers when, uh, when they do go out on strike. Yes. Um, and, and it's a, it's a, you know, that there's, there are, um, questions here where, one of the things that I say is that each of these discourses is is not singular. Um, they're contested discourses. Um, people will attempt to use them and mobilize them on behalf of different positions. And so, um, you know, there are often attempts um, to take the discourse of nurturance and to treat it as, as individual, um, mm -hmm. not collective. Um, and so, um, you know, to say to teachers things like, um, how can you go on strike and leave your students without their education? Or how can you take this job action? How can you go off and do professional development when some stranger right, will right. come in and teach um, your students? And what's clearly the case, um, if you um, think about it um, for any length of time, is that all of those things from professional development to taking job action will over the long run um, be important in improving the conditions, the teaching and learning conditions in your school. And so Absolutely. it becomes very important um, in this sort of battle how one defines the discourse of nurturance to see it as, as a collective discourse and and one that has political import as opposed to just a responsibility of you as an individual teacher to your student. Sure. Um, in fact, burnout um, is a very serious problem for teachers. And Absolutely. the reason why it is a serious problem is that if teachers feel that they are, that they can never do enough um, for their students and teaching is a sort of enterprise where there's always something more that can be done. And if they feel always. they're not effective in their caring, um, then, um, then it becomes harder and harder to sustain it. Um, so the, you, you need to have an efficacious caring. And the only way you can do that is by joining that impulse um, for caring to a political project um, that will change for the better the nature of teaching and learning.
Um, the, sec the second discourse, which is professionalism, is also a contested discourse. Um, it's um, the one that we most commonly hear discussed around education. Um, and there are those who would um, present um, teacher professionalism as something that would be contrary to collective action, something that would be contrary to organizing as a union. Um, and, um, and, and it is important, I think, to understand, um, because there are those um, in unions who say, because of that, we should have nothing to do with teacher professionalism, but it's important to understand, in fact, that there are different understandings of what it means to be a professional and that there is a democratic conception of professionalism um, that um, we should be promoting and that we should be in, involved with. And um, it very much involves um, the questions of knowledge um, and who controls the knowledge of teaching, um, how is that knowledge promoted? Um, and teacher unions, for example, have developed um, programs around this, like the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards, where um, we have um, articulated a, a conception of what it means to be a professional teacher um, and what sort of knowledge and skill it involves and how that can be identified. Um, and, and that is a very important component of, about, uh, of the work that we do. And um, in an age when uh, things like No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top and the focus on standardized um, exams and using them as a measure of everything is undermining the professional authority of teachers um, it would be a tragic mistake, in my view, um, to abandon that fight um, and to abandon the fight for professionalism as opposed to um, developing a democratic conception of what it means to be a, a professional. And really, with, with so many other professions starting to become collectively organized, I'm thinking about doctors and nurses and other places where... Um, the, the traditional professions are in some ways being de-skilled that, that they are also you know, turning to unionization to um, combat some of those changes and maintain their professional status. Yes. Um, and uh, so let's turn again to the, to the third one that you mentioned, the, the idea of craft. So the third, um, the third discourse is the discourse of craft and labor. Um, and, um, it, here again, there are different traditions of um, what that would mean. And um, it, obviously, one important component here is um, organizing into a union. And there is a tradition um, in the United States, in the labor movement, um, of craft unionism versus industrial unionism, a history. And mm -hmm. um, craft unions, which were organized first, 
um, were based around a particular um, set of skills, um, whether it was carpentry or cigar making or dressmaking. And, um, and you would organize all of the uh, people who had that skill into a union. Um, and then by the early 20th century, um, as industries developed, uh, which were broader than a particular set of skills, you look, for example, um, at the car industry, um, which um, not only did it have a mass production assembly line mode of production, but it also involved a number of discrete um, set of skills um, from uh, uh, the sort of electrical makings of a car um, mm -hmm. to um, the, the various crafts and in terms of um, metallurgy and other parts of, of a car. Um, My grandfather was a machinist. A machinist, yes. With the UAW. Yep. And, and so the, the model of, of craft union organizing was not very effective in the face of these mass production industries. Moreover, um, craft unions in the United States um, had tend to have an exclusive sort of identity. They tended to be male. Um, they tended to be white. Um, they, in many cases, um, they would have um, sort of internal rules which would exclude immigrants and others. Um, and so um, industrial unions um, that came in the 1930s, like the auto workers and the steel workers, um, tended to be much more inclusive, including um, particularly people, men of different races um, and and being less um, sexist in, in their orientation. And so the history, um, the labor history has tended to valorize uh, industrial unions and to see craft unions as outmoded. And in some important respects, that's true. But when you look at teacher unions, they are in some ways industrial unions, um, they have all of the educators and indeed many of the support workers that would work in public schools. So you would have not just teachers, but um, guidance counselors and social workers. Um, you would have um, the women who, um, who provided the food in the cafeteria. You would have the people who um, drove the buses back and forth to school, they all would be organized into um, a single union. And in that respect, they would be industrial. But there was also a very important knowledge component for teachers um, that didn't fit the model of industrial unions um, where work was largely de-skilled. And there are traditions that come out of craft unions, in particular, the tradition of apprenticeship, um, where a person would learn a craft by working with someone who was quite accomplished and had mastered that craft over a period of time that um, can be very useful in terms of 
uh, teacher preparation, teacher education um, in an age um, where it is clear that far too many teacher education programs are not preparing uh, novice teachers with the skills and knowledge they need to be successful. And so um, this idea of, of, a, of apprenticeship and of skilled practitioners uh, introducing um, novices in, into the craft of teaching um, is something which I think uh, we could uh, use in a significant way. And um, I make an argument about um, programs um, such as um, teacher residency programs, which place a lot more emphasis on the practical skills of teaching as a way to um, improve teaching um, in the United States. Yeah, this is a really interesting chapter for me. Um, but I want to move on to to the to the last one about um, uh, about uh, democratic work. So um, the last discourse is a discourse around teaching as the work of democratic intellectual work, and. From its very beginning, uh, American teacher unions have focused on the role that unionism and public education plays in the promotion of democratic governance. Uh, one of the earliest slogans of the American Federation of Teachers was democracy in education, education for democracy. So there was this link um, that was created between how democratic the organization of education was, what uh, rights and authority um, teachers had in the educational process on the one hand, and what teachers actually did in their classes to promote um, the knowledge and skills of democratic citizenship. And I think this idea of teaching as democratic uh, intellectual work, it is democratic because of its object, which is um, to promote and develop democracy is intellectual because it is, it is the actual process of, of organizing your classroom, not simply around what you teach, um, but with a pedagogy uh, and a classroom um, organization, which in some ways models um, for students what it is like to be a participant in a democratic process and in a democratic organization. Um, and so, you know, it is one thing for students to be taught um, in a didactic fashion uh, about what democratic citizenship is. And if that's something a student learns through a lecture um, or similar type process, the main lesson they will take away is that those are sort of empty words that don't mm -hmm. really have much meaning for their own lives. If on the other hand, 
the classroom is organized in a way that models democratic deliberation. If the teacher makes it clear that everyone in the class um, must be able to participate, um, regardless of their background, regardless of who they are, um, if they ensure that all voices are heard, um, if they focus on a deliberative process where students are actively engaged with the material, discussing it, making decisions um, themselves. Um, if you do a process where students are actually engaged um, in the skills and knowledge of citizenship, then they will learn those skills and knowledge. It's very much a Deweyan approach yeah. to education. Um, and so um, if, if students are able to identify um, a problem or issue in their community, which is important to them, if they're able to research it, um, understand how it developed, what its nature is, figure out potential solutions to it, um, decide which solution they would like to advocate for, and actually engage in the process of advocacy. That is a, a class in citizenship um, in yeah. which students will leave with a much deeper and more profound knowledge of how government works, what power is, and how it can be accessed, um, and in particular, what their own role is as an agent for change, um, then they will, if they go through a process um, where this is sort of transmitted to them in a, in a form where, where they themselves are not actively engaged. And so, um, and, and while, you know, the example I used is obviously an example that would be particularly pertinent for a civics class, I think it's true of all pedagogy. Um, it's equally true of a class, um, for example, in English language arts, um, you know, the students will, that class can be more or less democratic and, um, and students can be more or less um, active participants in it. Um, um, but, but generally speaking, um, this idea of teachers um, as democratic intellectuals um, is one of how teachers organize their classes and beyond their classes when they have the opportunity, how they organize schools. There are mm -hmm. a whole um, group of teacher-inspired schools along these democratic lines. Um, in, in ways that provide young people um, with the, the skills, the knowledge, the disposition um, to be active agencies in their own communities. And the, the last argument I make is that um, teacher identity is not simply one of these discourses, but it's a, it's a field in which these different discourses come together. And so the extent yeah. to which, um, for example, you combine 
the idea of teacher as a democratic intellectual um, with the idea of teaching as professional work. You're going to end up with a notion of teacher identity, um, which is much more democratic. With the, the notion of professionalism, um, which you use, is going to be a much more democratic concept of professionalism. And so when you do your organizing, um, teachers organizing themselves, um, organizers working with teachers, um, it's important to sort of combine these different discourses in ways um, that draws upon each of them. I think one of the um, um, easiest mistakes in doing teacher organizing is to um, focus simply on one of the discourses um, and at the expense of the others. and ignore the sort of wide range of 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 teachers' interests and concerns and passions um, when it's impossible when it's when it's possible in fact to um, to meld them together into a into a, a, a teacher identity which is um, which draws upon the best of each of these discourses. Because teaching is complex. Yes. Um, and, you know, I think um, people might think that that's daunting. And in some ways, yes, it is daunting. But it also points to the remarkable possibility there. Um, that yeah. there's, a, there's a great deal more political play uh, than I think people who do organizing commonly understand. And um, it's important um, to be able to, to really uh, tap into all of that. Um, and the, to the extent to which we can tap into all of it, um, to the extent to which um, teachers understand um, collective action and unions um, as not just a vehicle for one particular piece of it, but um, as an expression of all of it, we're much more likely to be successful. Well, that sounds like a good place to wrap up. Leo Casey, thank you so much for your time today. Um, once again, this has uh, been Tom DeSena for the New Books Network, the Education Channel, speaking to Leo Casey, the author of The Teacher Insurgency, A Strategic and Organizing Perspective.